So this week, we are continuing our series we're calling We Believe. Last week, Dominic Santor delivered a message that gave us a clear picture of sanctification. He told us that sanctification is getting used to our justification, the way that we live, the the things that we do, the good things that God has called us to do. We do them not to earn our place in heaven, not to have some skin in the game in our salvation, but out of response to what Christ has done for us. We are simply getting used to the reality of what Christ's death and resurrection means for us. This week, we're going to shift gears a little and, and move into the means of grace. We believe that God has given three means of grace to us, three tangible ways that God pours his great out, grace out over us. One of them is the word of God, the Bible. God still speaks to us today through his holy word, and, and it's tangible, right? We can, we can hold the pages, we can see the words, we can read them, and, and God still works in our hearts through the words that he gave us, gave to us oh so long ago. The Bible reveals to us God's desire and purpose for us. The Bible contains all that God wants us to know about him. All that we know of God has been revealed to us in his word. And he still speaks to us today through the Bible. It is a means of grace. The other two means of grace that we recognize are also known as sacraments because they were instituted by Jesus. He established them. One we'll be looking at next week, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, communion, when we receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given to us for the forgiveness of sins. This week, we'll be talking about the other means of grace, the sacrament of baptism. Never a controversial topic in the church, I'm sure. But when we are washed in the water and the word and brought into the family of God, What does the word baptism mean? In our little red book, the explanation of Luther's small catechism, we have this definition of baptism. The English word baptism comes from a word in the Greek language which means a cleansing by washing, immersion, and or death. And while that can be a little confusing on its own, what does death have to do with with being washed by water? Our text this morning does a pretty awesome job of bringing clarity to what takes place in baptism. We're going to be back in the book of Romans. Again, this book is super heavy with doctrine, just all the tasty doctrinal tidbits throughout the book of Romans. And we're going to be sitting in chapters 6, or chapter 6, looking at verses 1 to 4. So if you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to read along, I encourage you to head that direction now. If you forgot your Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you, or the words will also be on the screens beside me. Now to give a little context to what we're about to read, Paul ends the previous chapter with these words. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we hear, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, it is tempting to us dirty, rotten sinners to think, hey, if sinning increases grace, and part of me really likes sinning, and the other part of me really likes grace, then isn't it totally cool, even scripturally encouraged, to sin? And while we may be tempted to scoff at that, that is often where our broken, dirty little hearts take things. There was even a monk in Russia named Rasputin. 
No, not the dude that killed Anastasia's family. Not that guy. But, but a proper monk who, who taught that it was the Christian's duty to sin so that they might experience the grace of God in a greater way. Yeah, we humans are incredibly talented at twisting God's word to fit our purposes and desires. And Paul knew this. And he gave us those words that we might be encouraged not to sin, but encouraged in the knowledge that we could never outsin God's grace. Christ's death covers all sin for all time. His grace has no end. There is no sin that you have committed that Christ didn't cover, didn't die for. That's what Paul is saying in those words. And because he knows we're going to twist it, twist his words to fit our own purposes, he follows them up with our text this morning. And it's awesome because his response gives us such a fantastic view of what we are given in the means of grace, the sacrament of baptism. Again, our text is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. We read the word of the Lord this morning. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Let's end the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for another day of grace. We thank you for your love and your provision. And God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. In 1876, the author Mark Twain wrote a book titled The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Tom was a rambunctious young man in his early teens. He was an orphan, and he lived with his Aunt Polly in the town of St. Petersburg, Missouri. Tom was a fun-loving boy. He was all about skipping school and, and going swimming and experiencing adventure, but is often caught in his misadventures and then has the privilege of receiving the punishment for his deeds, like when he had to spend his whole Saturday whitewashing his aunt's fence. Tom has a friend named Huckleberry Finn, and one day Tom and Huck decide that they are done with the oppression of rules and the expectations of society, and so they fake their own deaths, and then they run off to play pirates on an island in the Mississippi River, free from consequence, for in the eyes of those who would bring punishment, they are dead and can be punished no longer. Mark Twain had some imagination when he wrote that story, but all he really did was take things a little farther than we do sometimes, right? How many times have I caught my children pretending to be asleep so that they didn't have to do their homework or sweep the floor or wash down the table when I asked them to? I may have resorted to that sort of thing as a kid, but how about us adults? I don't know how much, or I don't know much about other types of phones, but I know that on the iPhone there's, there's an option to let people know when the text that they sent you has been read. I send a text to my father, and my phone tells me when he's read the text. And if I asked a question or made a comment that requests an answer, I sit there in anticipation, maybe even expectation that he's going to respond. I mean, I know he's seen it, so. Any time would be great, right? 
It doesn't feel good when someone leaves you on read. I've read your text, but I'm not deigning to respond right now. And so in order that I won't let people down, so that, I won't, that, that they won't know that I've left them on read, I turn that option off on my phone. I may not have faked my death or be pretending to be asleep, but I have guarded myself from the expectation of response to whomever sent me a message. And it's true, not every text demands an immediate response. Sometimes it's okay to be left unread. Sometimes it's expected. The conversation is over. But what about when we are asked that question we're not ready to answer? What about when someone asks us a favor that we are not ready to fulfill, we're not excited about that particular inconvenience in our lives. Yeah, it's easier to pretend that we never got the instruction or never saw the question. Sometimes it's easier to pretend that we never got the message or that we were too busy to see it or whatever our excuse is. Sometimes it's easier to ignore the difficult thing, to hide ourselves from the difficult thing than it is to address it. It, it buys us time. It, it gives us an excuse. And that's not always bad. We should not feel obligated to let text messages control our lives. We need to be careful about giving people the power over us to demand things from us. But the point of the illustration isn't about how technology has too much power over us. It's about how we like to push things off, delay, not deal with things that make demands of us. Though we may try, we don't really get to escape demands, do we? Tom and Huck, though they had a great time on the island, eventually realized that they needed to be cared for. They went back to town and secretly attended the funeral that their loved ones had for them. And so Tom recognized his need for Aunt Polly in his life while also dealing with the shame he felt for making her and his other friends think that he had died. My kids can't sleep forever, though sometimes they try. And honestly, it's pretty obvious to us when they're faking it. None of our children snore that loud. When you're pretending, you got to make sure all the boxes are checked, right? And it's just frustrating for Karen and I because all they're doing is delaying the inevitable. All they're doing is trying to fool us and pushing back the timeline. And that's annoying. And honestly, sometimes it feels a little disrespectful. And though we may leave someone on red, we still need to answer the questions eventually. The time will come. We'll have to pay the piper. We can't just ignore it forever. Whether it says red or not at the message thread, they know we got the text. I mean, sometimes there are carrier issues, but that's not a regular thing. It doesn't happen all the time, and if it does, you should probably get a new carrier. But eventually, at some point, you're going to have to respond to the uncomfortable question to the inconvenient request. At some point... We have to pay the piper. We can't delay forever. That's true for Tom Sawyer. It's true for my children. It's true for text messaging. And it's true for our broken sinfulness as well, isn't it? As humans, we are sinners. God has asked us, called us to be perfect as he is perfect. And we have been unable to do so. The Bible tells us that we are sinful from the time of conception, hanging out as little embryos in our mother's womb. And though we had never taken a breath, didn't have a brain with which to form a thought, we were still little sinners. Because the corruption of sin is passed down to all people through Adam. Because of Adam's fall in the garden, because he ate the fruit through his seed, through him, sin is passed on to us. If you've got a dad, if you have a genetic father, 
then you are a sinner. It's in the genes. It's a part of being human. We aren't sinners because of how we act. We act the way we do because we are sinners. This is the doctrine, the belief called original sin, and it's, it's pretty heavy. Like this, this isn't cheery. It's not something that we're excited about, but we don't really have a lot of choice in the matter. And as much as we may want to pretend that we're asleep so that we don't have to deal with the consequences of our sin, as much as we want to leave our sinfulness on red, we don't get to do that either. It's not a problem that we can ignore. The consequences are not always immediate, right? But going the route of, of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and faking death just isn't going to do it. God cannot be deceived. And God can't be in relationship with sin, so there's this barrier. There's this divide between, between God and man. The most precious to God of all his creation, created in his image, his people, his love, and they have fallen, and he can't have the relationship with them that he designed them to have with him. So what does he do? Does he start over? Does he wipe the slate clean and, and create less damaged goods? No, he does not, though that would have cost him less. That is not what he did. Instead of starting over, he sent Jesus. He sent his son to earth, and Jesus left the utopia of heaven and came to this broken world, living and suffering alongside the fallen. But where we have stumbled in our brokenness, Jesus never lost his balance. Jesus never once sinned. He didn't have an earthly father, so he was not conceived with sin like the rest of us. Sin never touched him. Though he was tempted, he never wavered. Jesus was perfect, and we hated him for it. And one day Jesus was betrayed. He was convicted in a sham of a trial by a rigged jury. And he was sentenced to death, death on a cross. And so up the hill to Calvary walked our Lord with the weight of the heavy wooden timbers across his shoulders. But it was not just the cross that he carried up that hill, but the burden of the sin of the entire world was upon him. And as the nails went through his hands and feet and he was lifted up before man, being mocked for his nakedness and his vulnerability, there on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He became it. Our sin was given to Jesus. It was imputed to him. He became it. And there on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus because of our sin, because of, this, because of our sin or the sin that he became. Before he took his last breath, Jesus said these three words. It is finished. It is done. The penalty for sin has been paid. There is no more sin to pay for. Christ took all sin for all time, and he paid the price for all of them. It is finished. That sin that you've been struggling to confess, that one you don't want anyone to know about, yeah, God knew about it. He gave it to Christ, Jesus. Jesus became it and then died for it. It is finished. That sin that everyone knows about, the one that gives you shame whenever it's brought up, yeah, God gave that sin to Jesus too. And Jesus became it and died for it. It is finished. The heavenly penalty for sin is finished, church. Christ died for your sins, not that you would continue to torture yourself over them, but that you might be forgiven and come into a relationship with God.
For you see, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him and we have faith in him, when we are baptized into him, the dirty rags of our sin are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is what Paul is writing to the church in Rome about in our text this morning. He writes that when we are baptized into Christ, when we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we were baptized, we are joined with Jesus. We are joined with him in his death. The death to sin, the death that he died to pay the price for our failings, our sinfulness, our misdeeds, our screw-ups. Through baptism, we join Jesus in this death. That's, that's what Paul's saying here. And when we are joining with him in that death, we are also joined with him in being raised from the dead. When we are baptized, we go down with Jesus and we come up with Jesus. Death and resurrection. For what purpose? that we too may live a new life. A life on the other side of death. A life in which our sins have been forgiven. A life in which we have been justified. A life in which we are saved. People struggle with the idea that baptism saves, and, and I can understand that struggle when we look at baptism as something that we do. If we look at the baptisms that John the Baptist was doing or doling out in the wilderness, the baptism of repentance, yeah, that's people going to be forgiven. That's, that's something that they are doing that is showing their belief, expressing their sorrow over their sin and their need for forgiveness. But it was John himself who told the crowds, and by extension us, as it is recorded in Scripture, that one would come after him who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism into Christ is a whole different animal than the baptism we see John giving out in the beginning of the Gospels. The baptism we have today, the one that was instituted by Christ, the sacrament, is something that God does. It's not something that we do. It's not us doing the work in baptism. It's God working through the water and the word. We are taken out of it. And so because it's not us doing the work, we also don't need to be baptized multiple times. If it's us doing the work, then yeah, just like the daily repentance, we would need to come into the baptism waters again and again. But that's not what baptism is for. That's not what Jesus instituted. The Bible even tells us that we are called to one faith and one baptism. The gifts we receive in baptism are tied to Christ's work on the cross. And so once we are baptized, Christ's words ring true. It is finished. Christ didn't need to die twice, and so we don't need to join him in death twice or multiple times, for that matter. And since it is God doing the work, it doesn't matter where you got baptized. If you were washed with the water and the word in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter if that happened in a Catholic church, in a Lutheran church, in a Presbyterian church, in a Baptist church, or a house church, in a river with a ton of water, or just with a sprinkle on your head. If you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then God has done the work. And through the work of baptism, God saves us. 
Peter himself, the rock upon which God built his church, writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 22, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism now saves you. And Paul in our text this morning says that baptism gives us a new life. It brings us back from the dead. It saves us. So yes, we believe that baptism saves, and further, we believe that all need to be saved. And that includes children. For as we have talked about, we are conceived sinful. We got that gift from Adam. We all, even the youngest, most innocent of us, are still sinners in need of grace. And I get the struggle to understand how a child can have faith. It, it doesn't make sense to us. It's, it's hard to process. My son Amos, who we baptized last week and is only a couple of months old, he doesn't have the cognitive ability to laugh yet. How could he possibly process the deep thoughts associated with faith? And yet, while we may struggle with that, the Bible, the Word of God, does not. How often in Scripture are we told to have faith like a child? The disciples try to keep the bothersome little ones away from Jesus, but he tells them to stop and to let the little ones come to him, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Sometimes we adults think we have it all put together, all figured out, but I think, I think we get it wrong with faith a lot. Seems like little kids do a better job with faith than we do. I was putting my kids to bed the other night, and, and I took Noah and I held him by the chest and the waist, and I, I pushed him up against the ceiling in his bedroom. And the kid's loving it, laughing and giggling about Dad lifting him up here, seeing the new sights, the, the new areas that he can take in. One of my older boys decided that looked fun, and he wanted to do it. I didn't have that one past my shoulders before he started freaking out. It was too high. It was, it was too much. He didn't trust that I could hold him. And then, and then it seemed for my kids that it became less about me being able to hold them, less about faith in dad, and more about their ability to be brave. There was this subconscious understanding that there was the possibility that dad would drop them. Could they be brave enough to deal with my inabilities, my lack of strength? Some of the boys bit back their fear long enough for me to press them against the ceiling, though their concern was evident by the rigidness of their body and the wildness of their eyes. Some of them wouldn't let me bring them higher than my chest. But for Noah, he basked in the joy of Daddy enjoying him, lifting him to heights he could never have achieved on his own. Saying that children can't have faith is like saying there isn't a God. The evidence is all around us, if we only open our eyes enough to see it. Children need God's grace just as badly as we adults do. And Christ's death on the cross is just as important for them as it is for us. All are sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All need forgiveness. All need to join Jesus in his death that they might join Jesus in his resurrection and live a new life in salvation. Do not keep the little ones from baptism for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
Baptism is God working through the water and the word and washing away our sin on account of the death of Jesus Christ. In 2019, I went with a bunch of my pastor friends and our elder Victor down to San Diego to attend a convention put on by 1517, a group established to provide resources and encouragement in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, when you go to conventions, you tend to get what we like to call a swag bag. They got a lot of promo stuff in them, like a bunch of stickers and posters and the like, and that year, one of the, or that year, the attendees of this convention received a little black water bottle. And on that bottle was written, remember your baptism. Why would they put that on a water bottle? Why is, is that a phrase? Because each of us are sinners. Though we may be Christian, though we are to be struggling forward in our walks of faith and following the commandments and instructions, the good and holy law that God has given to us that we might live more edified and fulfilled lives, we aren't always super great at doing that. And the reminder to remember our baptism is a reminder that through baptism we have with Jesus died to sin and with Jesus been resurrected by the glory of God and that we have been given a new life. Remembering our baptism is remembering that Jesus died for us and that we are saved through the faith that has been given to us. That God has forgiven us. And man, we need this encouragement on the regular. Remembering our baptism is not finding security in the thought that because we were baptized, we are eternally secure. That piece of paper, that little certificate is not what we hand to, to Peter as our ticket through the pearly gates. Through baptism, we are given faith. Faith is what's saved, and faith is a gift, and gifts can be returned. We don't have children baptized, nor are we baptized ourselves, that we might then live a life of reckless abandon because we're good, we've got the certificate. That's not what we mean when we say remember your baptism. No, instead, as we ponder baptism, as we celebrate this means of grace, this sacrament instituted by Jesus, may it remind us all of all that Christ has done for us, the faith that he has given us, the salvation that he has welcomed us to. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn were only able to fake their death for so long. Eventually, they had to pay the piper. My kids can only delay chores for so long by faking sleep. You can only leave someone on red for so long, but eventually you'll have to have a conversation with them. And often that conversation gets harder the longer you put it off. But when we die to sin in Christ through baptism, Christ is the one who paid the price on the back end. He's the one who paid the piper. Though there will be and often are consequences here in this life for the sin that we do, the eternal significance of our sin, the spiritual consequences have been dealt with by our Lord and Savior on the cross, and we join him in the new life through baptism. Church, as you go today, as you go out into the world and live your life, loving your neighbor and on mission with Jesus, remember your baptism. Remember all of the gifts that God has given you through the work of Christ. And if you aren't baptized, well, I would love to have a conversation with you about that sometime. Because God has some fantastic things that he would love to give to you. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God that we serve. Amen.